0: Hello, and welcome to Michigan's Path to a Prosperous Future, a podcast by the Citizens Research Council of Michigan. This is Jonathan Osting. I'm a reporter with Bridge, Michigan, and I'm your guest host today for a hopefully interesting discussion. I'm here with Eric Dennis. He's a research associate at the Citizens Research Council of Michigan, and he worked on three really deep dive reports exploring sort of the history and status of Michigan infrastructure, the environment, and climate change, all sort of informing this larger discussion that we're having in the state of Michigan right now about Our population woes stagnant growth over the last 40 years. So, Eric, let's start with infrastructure. It's something I've written about a lot in my 15 years or so covering state government. Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer, of course, the current governor has made a big splash of at least trying to fix the damn roads. I don't think I ever heard him swear, but former Governor Rick Snyder tried to. But beyond gas taxes, is there anything unique about Michigan that sort of led us to this point where despite political promises or attempts, we still have pretty crappy roads along with other aging infrastructure like water systems? Can you talk about the role maybe suburban sprawl played? I know that was mentioned in your papers. And decisions that played a role in the decline leading us to where we are right now with infrastructure in the state.
1: Jonathan, thank you so much for being here. Yes, my paper on infrastructure highlighted that basically when you develop in a low density, what we call suburban sprawl type of pattern, it seems kind of obvious that for each house, when things are more spread out, you need more infrastructure to serve each household. And so as we moved from dense city centers such as Detroit, Pontiac, and Flint, and inner suburbs such as Dearborn, Redford, Royal Oak, places like that, into more what used to be rural townships, now suburban townships. The cost of infrastructure statewide has increased per population, and this type of sprawl is certainly not unique to Michigan, but what is kind of unique to Michigan is that as we developed in this sprawl type pattern, we had a fairly stagnant population. And so in other states, such as Florida, they were able to sprawl without the bill coming due quite yet. I think long term, they're going to find themselves in the same situation that we are. It's just simply more expensive to deliver infrastructure and municipal services to a sprawling region than it is to a denser region. But we found ourselves in this fiscal crunch sooner because we haven't had that growing population to continue to fund the new infrastructure that that's developed. So it's kind of a Ponzi scheme. If you can keep growing your population you can keep thinking that you can develop in a sprawl type pattern without that bill coming due. But as soon as you stop getting new population to fund that initial build out, those life cycle costs come due and you realize that you don't have enough revenue coming in from your population, from taxes and service fees to, to fund the whole life cycle of the infrastructure. So as our aging infrastructure needs to be replaced and, substantially maintained, it is more difficult for Michigan than other states to do that.
0: Wow, a Ponzi scheme. That's a really... Cool metaphor. I like that. I've covered issues like this, for instance, in the city of Detroit, where the real population lost there over decades. You still have to build roads down to the trash can in a neighborhood that only has one house left on a street, et cetera, et cetera. So there's still costs associated with maintaining the old infrastructure, even if you built a new infrastructure out in the suburbs. What about like the UP though, Eric, especially with roads, that being kind of a unique feature of the state too, that we've got a lot of areas that are very far apart up in the UP. You basically have to drive quite a long distance. We got to maintain those roads, just like we need to maintain the roads in suburban, you know, Metro Detroit where uh, many more people travel on them each year.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that generally the way that the Act 51 distribution formula works out, it does favor lower population rural areas. There are a couple of things that causes pavement to degrade. One thing is climactic factors, freeze-thaw cycles, things like that, and that applies more or less evenly across the entire state, and there are design things that you can do to mitigate those factors. But the second thing is traffic, especially heavy truck traffic. And so in areas that are not getting heavy truck traffic, such as what we'd call urban, it's still urban areas in the UP, these towns and cities up there, they don't have a lot of truck traffic to degrade their roads, whereas lower Michigan does. Now, that's not necessarily true for trunk lines. There's still a lot of like lumber trucks and gravel trains and things like that that are bringing heavy materials down and across the state up there. And so the trunk lines are still getting that truck pressure, but not so much the cities. And so the roads in the UP tend to be in better shape than the roads in the lower peninsulas, especially in Metro Detroit, in part because of that truck traffic that we get. And other factors were just very spread out down here. There's a lot of pavement <laughs>
0: I can't even count how many times I've heard lawmakers say they'd like to revisit the state's current funding formula, PA 51. You mentioned that, but it's been kind of one of those like just intractable issues because no lawmaker and a part of the state that's benefiting from that formula is going to vote to change it or hasn't traditionally anyway. So with that said, we're seeing an ongoing transition to electric vehicles right now. And of course, that means the traditional model for funding roads through fuel taxes is up in the air, how long that's going to last or be a meaningful way to fund infrastructure. So um, what are some other options states are considering and how far behind are we here in Michigan with those discussions?
1: The the first, the go-to option is something called a road usage charge, where you measure the distance that people actually drive and you'd have a per mile fee. Um, I should mention that at this time, we are receiving As much or more revenue from the gas tax than we ever have, uh, both because of our recent increases in the gas tax and registration fees, as well as it, that EV transition just hasn't happened that fast yet. So we're still at very high levels of gas tax revenue. It likely will be a problem moving forward. I do expect that revenue to begin decreasing in coming years and decades. Transitioning to a road usage charge is difficult. There, It's just not easy to find a way to measure how much people drive. And remember, this would be a replacement for the state gas tax. So you would ideally find a way to measure how much people are driving in the state. So you would have to GPS locate those miles so that if somebody goes to Ontario or Indiana or something, they shouldn't still be paying the state per mileage fee, right? And so that involves either very specific reporting from individuals with some kind of enforcement follow-up to make sure they're being honest or putting a GPS tracker in their car. And right now, there's really no good way of Doing that. There are a few states that have incorporated a road usage charge into their revenue structure, but all of those states right now are actually losing money on that program uh, because a couple of reasons. For one, all of those states have a voluntary program, and so people are only volunteering to pay that road usage charge in as opposed to the alternative because they will save money there. And there's also some very high administrative costs. And so there's a lot of experimentation going on, but a road usage charge is definitely not a near-term solution. And in my opinion, it's something that would have to come from the federal level to take care of this interstate issue where one state's road usage charge should not be able to charge for miles traveled in another state. And so I think that federal administration of this would be necessary to alleviate all of those interstate issues. And the federal the federal FHWA, Federal Highway Administra- and Administration, does have a program right now where they're experimenting with this. There's some grants available for states to look at this from an interstate perspective, but that program is progressing fairly slowly. I'm not sure where it's going yet.
0: In addition to the logistical issues you mentioned, there's also big brother concerns (laughs) associated with that kind of thing. I've done some reporting on if we're going to put a transponder in people's cars, even though it might be like the easy pass system you use voluntarily in Chicago. There's going to be some pushback there. A lot of states are wrestling with that issue now. So let's turn to your next report on the environment. I was just up hanging out in northern Michigan this weekend. Never ceases to amaze great beaches in summer, great leaf colors in the fall really good options for winter sports. So we've got these pretty amazing assets here in Michigan, but your report talks a little bit about this. Are are we doing enough to, to leverage those to boost the economy or the quality of life for people who are already living here in Michigan or might consider coming?
1: I think we're doing a lot to promote our environmental assets. I think we could be doing more to protect them and remediate them as a historically industrial state Michigan has a lot of legacy pollution, specifically soil pollution, which becomes groundwater pollution, which eventually becomes surface water pollution because of the water cycle. Our groundwater infiltrates into our rivers and streams, into the Great Lakes. And we have historically kind of allowed industrial emitters to pollute the property that they own without remediating it if they can show that it doesn't pose a very specific hazard to human health. And so what we've often done, rather than require them to remediate the pollution that they put on the ground and in the ground and in the water, is impose what they call restrictive covenants, that requires that the land cannot be used in certain ways that would increase human contact with this land. And so there's over 3,000 restrictive covenants in Michigan right now, parcels of property that cannot be used in certain ways because it's polluted and there's no plan to remediate that pollution. And this often takes parcels of property often in very economically active places out of it prevents them from having economic benefit. It prevents them from being redeveloped because developers don't want to deal with that restrictive covenant that would prevent them from doing certain things. And this is still the case. We don't have a polluter pay law. We still allow polluters to pollute their land and impose a restrictive covenant without cleaning it up. And so I think that one thing that we could do is have a polluter pay law that prevents ongoing pollution from becoming a problem We should probably have some more funding and programs to remediate the parcels that are already polluted so that we can get these parcels back into economic uh, productivity.
0: Lawmakers right now in Lansing are discussing that potential of a polluter pay law. It's been discussed for a long time, but... Democrats have majorities now and seem a little more interested in that policy than Republicans who previously led the legislature. I was particularly struck in your report of something called sacrifice zones in Michigan. They seem to be areas where there are just so many competing pollutants in any one given area. That creates a really dangerous mixture for folks living there or trying to raise children. What sort of policy solutions or ideas have other states employed to address these sorts of issues? And are there opportunities for Michigan to do more?
1: I think there are. So the issue with and sacrifice zones is not my term. It's something that I adopted from other environmental advocates that points out that when we regulate pollutants, especially air pollution emissions, Uh, we regulate them on a permit-by-permit, pollutant-by-pollutant basis. And so you can have these areas where none of the emissions from any of the specific industrial facilities are at a level that is, I wouldn't say it's problematic, but it's not in violation. Uh, But when you have many of these facilities and many of these emissions, in the same place, there are real and measurable human health impacts. And so even though all of the pollutions are below what the EPA would um, allow, below the level that the EPA would allow before enforcing remedial action, people are still getting sick. And so I think if we were to take more of a human health approach to environmental policy rather than regulating the emissions themselves, we could really help people be healthier and live fuller, make these neighborhoods more into places where people don't mind living, where they would actually want to live. They can be healthy there. And there are ways to do this. I'm an environmental engineer, and we can take these emissions out of these smokestacks, but it takes a little bit of money. And when industrial facilities can get away with not doing that, it they reduce their Operating costs, and they make a little bit more money, and so they prefer not to. And if we don't force them to clean that up, they will continue to do so. But we're imposing a health impact on our citizens.
0: The third paper we're going to discuss today has some pretty clear ties to that issue: climate change, sort of perhaps the end result of some of those industrial policies in the state and nation and world. Obviously. Climate change is projected to have a lot of negative consequences globally. What have we seen so far in Michigan? Like what, you know, direct uh, impacts are are we already seeing here?
1: Climate change is measurable. We are getting warmer as a state. It's interesting to me, we're getting warmer mostly in the winter and spring. Our fall and summer temperatures actually haven't increased much, but that trend may not hold in the future. Another thing, we are getting measurably more precipitation, and the precipitation that we are getting is coming in more extreme uh, storms, rain and snow storms. With climate change, so what we've done, they call it global warming, but really what we've done is add energy to the climate system, and we've destabilized it. So the main thing with climate change is that our weather will become less predictable there will be more extremes on both sides. We're likely to experience more frequent droughts, but also ironically more frequent floods because with it being overall warmer, that takes moisture out of the soil, but a warmer atmosphere holds more moisture in the air. And so we're going to get these extreme rainstorms. So it's just going to be overall more challenging to manage all of the tertiary issues with that, protecting people from heat in the summer, managing snowstorms in the winter and floods in the summer. There's just going to be a lot more challenge from climate change in Michigan and elsewhere.
0: Sure. And I imagine the states that uh, take a, have a proactive approach or the right policy framework in place to sort of prepare for that are going to be in good position perhaps to grow their populations in the future. One of the things I've heard a lot about in the context of uh, population and climate change is this idea that Michigan could one day, maybe is already a little bit, I don't know, becoming sort of a climate haven for folks who want to flee areas that are impacted earlier or more severely uh, than we may be. Do you see that as a realistic possibility? Is there evidence it's happening? And and is there steps the state should be taking right now to sort of prepare for that future?
1: There are anecdotes that people are moving to escape climate change, but Phoenix is still one of the fastest growing regions in the country. Phoenix has always been barely habitable. I think that it is a possibility, but we can't just assume that people will move to Michigan because it sucks less than most other places. I think it's really important that we actually build communities that welcome people. We need good schools, good facilities, good infrastructure ways to take advantage of our climate, such as providing recreational opportunities, cleaning up our rivers and streams, taking advantage of our water resources. I don't expect that it will happen without, people aren't just going to move here to escape climate change. They're going to need a reason to move here. There are other places they could move to escape climate change, and those that The migration data so far, people are still moving to the Sun Belt. They're still moving into these very vulnerable areas. So that might happen in the future that there will be climate migrants back to the north, but it's not yet in the migration data.
0: Yeah, so we shouldn't bank on it anytime soon, making a meaningful change in our population patterns. So, Governor Whitmer has, right, I think it was last year, released her My Healthy Climate Plan to make Michigan carbon neutral by 2050, 2050. Lawmakers this fall are debating legislation to sort of write some of those clean energy goals into law. I don't know if they'll land right at 2050, like the governor, maybe twenty. 45. But in any case, there's a push to rewrite Michigan energy laws for a clean energy future. How does Michigan compare to other states right now when it comes to climate change policies? And I guess bigger picture, like how important
1: are state level policies
0: really when we're dealing with a global phenomenon?
1: States can only do so much. Michigan can't stop climate change. I think it is important to do our part to reduce carbon to mitigate climate change. And we're not doing bad, actually. So I think it's certainly important that states do whatever they can to mitigate climate change without imposing detrimental policies that would increase energy costs or really disrupt the economy. Obviously, a state, cannot stop climate change. This is a global phenomenon. So I think it's important that we prepare for it. And it's notable that the Michigan, the My Healthy Climate Plan is not a climate adaptivity plan. It is a climate mitigation. It's a carbon reduction plan. And so we're not looking forward at least in terms of a central state policy at what climate change is going to do to Michigan. We are trying to reduce our car- carbon output. Michigan right now ranks 25th among the 50 states in electricity generated from renewable resources. So, we're not doing too bad there. We have 10% of our 10.2% as of 2020 of our electricity coming from renewable resources. Importantly, Michigan is part of a regional grid run by MISO, the Midwest, I can't remember what the acronym is, but states are all connected. And MISO has looked at this and they don't know how to deal with more than about 30, maybe 40% percentage renewable um, electricity generation rate. And so it's really not clear what a carbon-neutral state or carbon-neutral grid looks like. We just don't know how to uh, integrate that percentage of renewables into our grid at this point. So California, for example, has a 34.7% rate, but when the wind isn't blowing and the sun isn't shining, they import energy from other states. Michigan doesn't have to do that yet. We actually export a little bit of energy. But as Michigan and adjacent states increase their percentage of renewables, it's going to be a big problem for the regional grid operator to figure out how to shift all this energy around to get it from where it's being generated to where it's needed. And there's going to be a lot of very complicated investments required in that.
0: Yeah, complicated indeed. Well, it's an
1: interesting policy debate that
0: is underway right now in Lansing, and a lot of this research that we're talking about from the Citizens Research Council of Michigan is helping inform that debate. This is Michigan's Path to a Prosperous Future. It's a multi-part podcast. Please return to this feed for some more episodes on these important topics. Eric, thanks so much. Really appreciated the talk. Thank you, Jonathan the citizens research council of michigan has been providing lawmakers academics and the media and all michiganders really with factual unbiased independent information on significant issues concerning state and local government organization and finance for 107 years our research is available to you go online at crcmich.org and on twitter at crcmich Download our research, check out our numerous blogs and listen to our podcasts. And while you're there, please consider supporting our research with a donation. We rely on charitable donations for our work. This has been a Facts Matter podcast, a presentation of the Citizens Research Council of Michigan.